In this episode, we speak with Trey Sale, a partner at Toma Bravo, where he leads the firm's growth investment strategy. Trey led growth investments in FTX, Illumio, and Service Titan, along with several other notable companies. Toma Bravo is one of the most successful software investment firms in the world, with over 40 years of experience and more than $100 billion in assets under management. Throughout Trey's 16-plus-year career at Toma Bravo, he has been instrumental in orchestrating over 22 deals representing approximately $50 billion of transaction value. Trey was named a Top 25 Software Investor by GrowthCap in 2021. We hope you enjoy the show. Trey, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. We'd love to start off with your journey actually at Toma Bravo. You've been there for a number of years, a long number of years, and you've seen it grow over time. So we'd love to start there. Perfect. And and it's a pleasure joining this and I'm flattered for you, including me in this podcast. And, And yeah, happy to handle any kind of questions or topics. But for me personally, I joined Toma Bravo. It's actually a different name at the time. Just shows how long I've been here back in 2005, which is 17 years running for those of you counting. And as you know, in investor world, that's multiple lifetimes to spend at, at one individual place. I'm very proud of uh, what I've watched transpire and the elements that I've been able to participate in. But obviously, a good group of people here that, that make this very fun and enjoyable. Before that, I did a couple years of investment banking, but it's a pretty unexotic career given how long I've been here. But to your point, I was able to join at the kind of the dawn of our software investing experience. We did our first transaction in January of 2003. So we're about 20 years almost in the nose running right now in terms of software only investing. Once we got a taste of that first investment in software, it was a vertical market ERP company called Profit 21, sold to made to order manufacturing. So even very niche within a vertical. And we were able to help the company identify some efficiency gains through being thinking a lot smarter about their operations. And then we did a series of M&A deals all within a period of about nine months and recognized tremendous progress that the company had made and realized very quickly that the things that we were doing with that business were not so specific to that business that that couldn't be replicated across any software market. And therein lies how we got conviction right away to just rip the bandaid off. And we were looking at other business services and other areas. Just everybody jumped into software almost immediately and started running with it. When I joined, we had just agreed on a LOI with our fourth software deal. And of course, now today, that number is in the hundreds. You know, if you include add-on acquisitions, we've done you know, close to 600 deals of materiality here at Tome Bravo in software. And and speaking to how everyone jumped in at that time, can you compare how competitive it was then to how competitive it is now to get deals done in the software market? Yeah, it is. That's changed tremendously. There was uh, a small cast of characters that were ready to do, which at that point was kind of mid-market. This wasn't like bigger, large cap, if you want to call it that, transactions, but in that mid-market there were a small handful generally located here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Some have even went on to do consumer retail and got out of software because they hated the fact of how competitive it became. They wanted to find the next uncompetitive environment, if you will. But yes, that has changed. And, and I mean, deal, the length, I, I measure it sometimes, the metric I use is what are the windows for getting deals done now? We used to work on a deal for five or six months, like literally that long, like diligence, watch two quarters, that's now compressed into within reason two to three weeks. Like that five to six months is now two to three weeks. So that gives you 
I think, a good understanding of just how competitive things have become. And, you know, as, as other firms become much more familiar with the sophomore market, they're able to act quicker and believe in their instincts and some of their recent experiences to say that, hey, I'm willing to make that bet, you know, even on maybe a 70% baked, you know, kind of work product, it's enough for me. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's gotten very, very competitive over time. And, and Tomer Bravo has become one of the, you know, top names when it comes to software investing. You know, what do you think has enabled you and the firm to succeed over such a long time frame? And maybe this gets to some of the value that you provide to the companies you invest in. Honestly, it's in a kind of a global sense, it's sticking to the script. Our firm has never pivoted, reinvented, you know, you could think of whatever kind of verb or adjective you want to use to describe those that you know, change themselves over time. We've been hard and fast at the same principles, you know, since we got started. And many of those principles, we were fortunate at the time, we learned from some operators who had tremendous experience, not just the software, but tech broadly for a couple decades. And we were students of what made those individuals very successful as operators and learned very quickly how we could be partners to management. And what I mean specifically by that is a lot of, um, I think the belief out there is that there's a lot of like analysis and who's got a better model than somebody else or something. Of course, it goes well beyond that. If you flip to the other side and say, well, what are like more qualitative, maybe even some personal side of things that make investors successful? Always been really, really good at listening to management teams first. Don't assume we know any better than somebody who's been running a company for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, ought to state the obvious, they know their business better than we do. Once we feel like we're immersed as much as we can be with an understanding from their lens, them being a CEO or an executive team at a business, then how can we use what I call our AIML of our 600 deals over 20 years to then fit in to where they see gaps or, or blind spots or challenges or opportunities that they never really figured out to take advantage of and be in sometimes rifle shot into those areas and dive in with our experience. And, you know, while some software companies think, and I mean this in, in a positive sense for a lot of entrepreneurs and founders and management teams, that their struggles or their things they're focused on are different or special to them, the reality is they're typically not. And it's something that somebody has grappled with at some point in the past where we have been a part of that decisioning. And to be honest, sometimes we made mistakes, right? In the past, we very quickly learned we will avoid that kind of decision in the future. But more fortunately, more often than not, and thankfully way more often than not, we did something right. And then we're able to replicate that at the, at the next business that we're working with, or the next management team that we're partnering with. And so, again, using that as our guide of listening to management teams talk about their business and figuring out how we can use our experience level to sort of fit in has been the, the framework that's made us you know, very successful. I would also just add on that we're a fantastic combination of strategic and operational investors. And specifically what I mean by that is on the strategic side, help companies think about, you know, from a a roadmap perspective or things that often fall in the product management function, what's the vision for where this business should go? How can we get there? Is it better to buy that company or should we organically build this on our own? How can we put that together in terms of business combinations and then in working with them on that? And so we were very helpful strategically thinking through that and how to, and then there's partnerships, everything else falls into that kind of category of strategic thinking. And then on the operational side, and that's the the other part of the coin here, 
is again, that AIML of learning over and over again, best in class operations, and then being able to offer those sorts of experiences to management teams. None of us are, are rocket scientists. We're really good at pattern recognition. And we've surrounded ourselves with some world-class operators who felt like it was a time in their career to step aside from the CEO or CFO or operating role that they were in and work with a portfolio of companies. And that's what they enjoy doing and serving as management partners. So it's that, sorry for the very long answer there, but I think it's important. That's a, that's a big part of our heritage and that's always been the principles of how we've operated. Now, you're currently invested in, in a, a good number of companies and you have a lot of capital to deploy. So how do you go about the process from beginning to end of identifying from identification all the way to commitment? Do you have kind of a set number of kind of verticals within software that you're consistently paying attention to and monitoring certain companies, and then you kind of act at the appropriate time? How do you run an efficient investment process? Great question. So we look at anything that's in software. So just starting again at a 10,000 foot level, and then we'll zone in on a few areas. What that means for us is anything that uses, we use software a little bit more liberally as a term where I think others might not necessarily consider some of the businesses we look at as software. That includes things like tech-enabled services, anything that uses source code as its critical IP or sort of crown jewel. And I think of like we own an internet company that uses its own AIML to target ads for people using it, viewing its site. We consider that actually to fall into the software category. So again, anything that falls into that definition, the one area perhaps we haven't been as active in is in business to consume B2C area, which is a small part of the software market. Almost all of it at some level is sort of B2B as it is. And so we don't, we don't do as much there. But that's a pretty huge remit, like B2B software and tech-enabled services, very, very big area. And so, you know, I would further sort of break it down into, you know, categories that we're very much interested in. We, we separate, actually, maybe the way I'll address the question is this. We separate the world into four categories here at Tongue Bravo. Vertical market applications. I mentioned our first deal was a ERP system for made-to-order manufacturing. Great example vertical market application, horizontal applications. Is there an HR solution as an example that goes horizontally that business users, someone who runs a chief people officer or someone in HR would interact with every day? The next one is security, which speaks for itself. I think everyone sort of understands the security software market. And finally, infrastructure, which includes things like modern data stack, application development, other sort of technology sold specifically to the IT groups. And so that's how we organize ourselves across all our different funds that we're investing. And we get very granular in terms of our understanding of the companies in these spaces, the, the prevailing trends, sort of where the puck is going and form our own judgments with those groups within those different silos. And then obviously, you know, do our best to pick what we believe are market leaders in markets with great tailwinds. As you can appreciate, once you go down the, the roots of the tree, they spread and you get into much different silos. And we do have to make decisions on where we think that there's a better use of our time than others. But hopefully that's a good kind of framework of how we look at things and where we kind of spend our time. And, and I would say finally that the last couple of things, growth is a huge part of what we're doing, whether it's a buyout deal or the fund that I'm responsible for here in, in Tomo Bravo and share with, with the other senior team that work in it, minority growth equity investing. And so we're, we're always looking for growth regardless of what pocket of capital is coming in. And so that's another element you know, that comes with, with our investment strategy. And finally, I would say this is the coming back to kind of the, the personal side of things. 
we have to find teams that see us as valuable and believe in a dialogue and a trade, meaning we are not just money. There's lots of money still, even with markets whipping around, people being a little bit more scrutinizing of different things they're doing. There's still a tremendous amount of capital and liquidity out there to go around where we see that there's a partnership and we can learn from management and management actually vice versa would like to learn a few things perhaps from us. Fantastic, you know, kind of set up for us. And that's where we can actually then do what we do best, which is find incremental growth opportunities very quickly with management teams that are desirous of having that kind of input. And for uh, the benefit of our audience that are trying to understand Toma Bravo better, you have various funds that you invest out of. So when you're investing, which fund is that coming out of? And can you kind of describe some of the other pockets of capital within the firm? Yeah, yeah it's, it used to be very simple. In the beginning, there was one fund and it was sort of one strat, one fund, you know, that, that just looked at the available opportunity set. One area that I think is particularly interesting to especially the younger generation of growth investors that's coming up and maybe they're running a, their own fund, 500 million to 2 billion, is how a firm like Toma Bravo has been able to build over time. And I think it, this is getting to the culture. What's special about the culture of Toma Bravo? Yeah, I think you're hitting on something that's very important. Since the moment I joined, there was a we had a San Francisco office doing this onset of software investing, and there was maybe eight of us, you know, doing working together. And when you have eight people, and our funds weren't large back then, but we were still covering a completely untouched market, Greenfield, meaning like not many, as I said, there were only a few of us doing software investing that far back. You know, we might have even been one of the first to actually do a software deal, at least the software take privacy, just kind of goes, you know, we nothing had been sort of like addressed yet in terms of the market opportunity. So as eight people, you know, of different seniority had to go kind of attack, you know, this market. And what happens in those scenarios is it becomes incredibly flat. Like I mentioned the word hierarchy, but like you would come in each day and it's not like in my investment banking analyst days where those of us who kind of went through that training, you know, it was very rigid hierarchical. You're very much counted on for your own opinion, how you're going to spend your time, which companies you decided to raise and elevate to the broader committee or team. And that has never changed when we've gone from eight to 150 people, you know, investment professionals. And it's still an incredibly flat, scrappy, kind of relentless group that when we see opportunities that we think fit, you know, some of the criteria I talked about earlier that are and provide for great partnerships, we're sort of all over it. And we don't rely on a super senior individual or, or anybody for that matter to kind of drive things. Everybody's kind of held accountable. And I think that makes it a super uplifting experience for people of all different levels here and ages. And they feel like they're really contributing to something every step of the way. So I think that's been a, a real critical part of our secret sauce. And are there any other, any specific areas of software that, that really excite you right now? Yeah, I, uh, it's like a, a parent, you love all your children. You know, it's hard to sort of distinguish necessarily. We've always had an affinity for security and security is a massive market. So that's a loaded statement, right? Like what kind of security? There's plenty that again, we can go down a few rat holes in terms of talking about areas of security that we're particularly excited about. But with cloud and, and SaaS being the prevailing form factor going forward, there's a lot of new opportunities for securing those applications or the infrastructure, the cloud infrastructure behind it. And so I think that's an interesting area, but that doesn't come at, at the expense of saying that more traditional identity access management, things like that are not no longer kind of as interesting. There's still plenty of interesting things and innovation happening there as well. 
Another area is, as I mentioned earlier, like modern data stack. I've been super excited and impressed by some of the entrepreneurialism that's happened in new database technologies that are purpose-built for specific types of applications, real-time internal use cases, external use cases. And the innovation there has been just tremendous. And I actually think we haven't even scratched the surface of what applications will be capable of doing in five years because of this database or infrastructure technology sort of underlying these applications and how much can be done in real time. It's amazing. So that's another area that's quite exciting to us. And we're always interested. I mean, fintech has always been a um, super innovative space as well, as we've seen just at every level. I wouldn't even know where to begin in that. But, you know, one thing I'll highlight is in this the crypto world as well. And it's not something that you know, a year ago, I would have woken up and have said that Tomo Bravo was going to have a exposure to crypto-related businesses. But, man, we're big believers in that market, specifically the infrastructure, as opposed to the actual currencies themselves. But exchanges, custodians, staking partners, the list kind of goes on and on and on. There's just a tremendous economy that's being built real time. It's just kind of took, taken off in a very special way in the last two years. It's sort of always been around since 2007, crypto as an idea or currency for that matter. But now the plumbing is in place that can really grow that business. And the use cases for that are obviously expanding rapidly. So that's just a flavor of some things that are that are really interesting to us. Got it. Before I hop into my final two questions, just want to touch on ESG and hear a little bit about how Toma Bravo is approaching ESG and kind of the level of activity you have in that area. Yeah, absolutely. It's something our firm takes incredibly seriously. And we actually have, you know, individuals essentially on our staff right now, you know, dedicated to programs, you know, geared towards ESG topics. As you know, ESG has become a, a very large, you know, set of considerations from things that involve obviously environmental, most clearly it's manifested in social and everything in between. I would say some of the programs I'm I'm really thrilled about, one that's worked particularly well and, and like anything. We've had a lot of initiatives. I would say some have worked better than others, but the spirit has all been the same, right? Of trying to make the, the right kind of impact on a more social level. But we actually went for our tech is becoming such obviously a driving force and bigger part of the economy every day. And software is a huge part of the, the kind of tech movement. And that's a skill set that people who have the opportunity to work not in the investment firms, not like at Toma Bravo, but in at software companies and actually understand how a software business operates, have an opportunity to realize what these software platforms are doing for their end customers and expose them to that. We put in place some programs for typically younger individuals that are misrepresented at this point in time in tech, quite frankly. And tech is, you know, from a socioeconomic perspective, not on purpose, has kind of looked more uniform historically and that's changing, and we want to be an agent to expedite that change even further and faster. And so we have a program that I'm really proud of actually placing individuals directly into the companies that are investments. Mm-hmm. So specifically, that's one that I'm very proud of. There have been, again, many other things, even outside of the social realm, more focused on environmental elements as well. But that one in particular, I've been seeing work really, really well and was thrilled the last time we had a kind of an update internally on it. was really impressed with, with the success we're having there. Great. Final two questions. Can you tell us about a person that you admire? Could be a leader in a specific area of expertise. It could be, you know, a traditional CEO. It could be someone in, you know, sports or politics. Anyone, someone you you think very highly of. Yeah, it's a good question. This is, I promise this will be the corniest response and it'll sound 
like I, I purposely give it thought and place this way. And I, I did give it thought before this call about this. I am most fond of our CEO partners. And that's why I say it's corny. Because of course you'd say that. But let me obviously describe in a little bit more detail. The partners that, that we work with, whether it's in our minority growth equity fund or our private equity funds and, and everything in between, you know, they made a conscious decision amidst a lot of alternatives to work with someone like ourselves, knowing the fruits of working with someone like us involved really pinging us and asking us for feedback on things. And that takes a level of humility and an openness to others' perspectives that you know, I think sometimes lacks in pockets of broader tech. You know, some entrepreneurs have been so successful and done so well that it's sometimes hard to naturally open up and actually solicit kind of feedback, you know, from other people. It seems like it's something that everybody should do, but it doesn't actually come naturally to every leader that's out there. And so the leaders that are, um, you know, willing to listen and, and have and open up to other perspectives and actually think about actually giving that a chance and running with some of these different ideas. I'm very impressed with leaders that are capable of doing that. And those are the types of people that we've been partnering with and run our companies that we're involved with today. So as corny as that is, it is the truth. I don't have like a historical figure that I've often thought long and hard about, you know, my whole life is a, you know, particularly fantastic leader. There's certainly, you know, a handful of people I've been really impressed with, but because I've also never gotten to know any of them personally, and I've gotten to know the people who run our companies personally, that's also why I gravitate towards that as an answer. Excellent. Last question is, can you tell us about a book you would recommend to the audience? Yeah, I was, you know, thinking about this a little bit earlier. I'm, I'm not admittedly, I wish I was much more well-read for some of the great you know, literature that's out there today written by, you know, CEOs, ex-CEOs, some fantastic stuff. I get stuff recommending all the time. In fact, I have a, a list of the problems I haven't actually gotten to them. I'm usually a more tactical reader about very short articles and things of that nature. But I will say categorically what, what I do enjoy is reading contrarian views on things. That stuff is always really interesting to me where there are authors, whether they're bona fide authors of actual literature books or, you know, columnists or anything like that in between, but are willing to kind of step outside and provide rationale and the like for contrarian views on things I think are, are really interesting. And that's not because we are a contrarian investor by nature, but you should always be challenging your thoughts and the direction you're going, uh, not so you feel uncertain about what you're doing, but always thinking about what could happen. And then that helps inform how you stay on your toes going forward and course correct if need be. So I'm always inspired by those things, but I'm also into humor and um, love reading my kids. My daughter's into Captain Underpants and there's nothing to really wean from that book other than ever take yourself too seriously. I think that's all you can wean from that. But it's stuff like that that I find, you know, hilarious. It's actually brought me a lot closer to my kids as they've been growing up and we find interesting things to read together. That's the closest I get to books. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time, Trey. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Awesome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And yeah, it's been great uh, getting an opportunity to chat and get to know you. Thank you. 